Thank you for listening to the Aging Well with VNA podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from a panel of medical professionals and community leaders sharing their expertise and insight into the importance of the COVID-19 vaccine, as well as overcoming access issues and cultural skepticism. The panel addresses some common questions, concerns, and myths that have emerged from the COVID-19 vaccines. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for all of you who are joining live, um, and, and we will also have a recording of this, but thank you for everybody for taking time out to participate in our live panel discussion about the vaccine, and hopefully we will be able to answer some um, common questions and your questions at the end with our esteemed panel. We have an excellent um, panel today, and I'm Olivia Rogers. I'm the Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer of um, the Visiting Nurse Association. And I wanted to start out by allowing Dr. Chang to introduce himself and we'll go from there. Hi everybody, uh, I guess it's afternoon, good afternoon or happy lunchtime, whatever you guys are doing. Uh, my name is Joe, I'm the Chief Medical Officer here at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Um, I know on the screen it says something about outpatient and ambulatory services, but uh, I left that title about a year ago um, and uh, uh, am happy to be taking care of uh, the hospital and the clinics at this point. So happy to be here. Uh, hope it's helpful. And I, I read something interesting. Everyone's bios will be posted on the webpage, um, but I did not realize, Dr. Chang, that you guys see over a million outpatient, you have a million outpatient encounters a year there at Parkland. Yeah, we our, our total encounter number is about 1.4 million uh, every year. Um, last year is actually a little bit lower, which for understandable uh, reasons, um, when we converted a lot of things to virtual uh, instead of seeing them on campus, which, which obviously was better for the for the community and everybody. Um, but yeah, we uh, we do a lot of work uh, here at Parkland, um, and we do actually have the distinction of having the absolute busiest emergency department in the entire country. Wow, I did not know that. Thank you yeah. so much, Dr. Chang. And Dr. Chang is the um, chief medical officer there at Parkland. And what an honor um, to have you on our panel. Um, Marcus, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. My name is Marcus Zavala. I'm the chief pharmacy officer for Perone Pharmacy. Um, I'm a compounding and hospice clinical pharmacist here on site. And uh, Perone's Pharmacy services all of our hospice um, and palliative patients here at BNA and have also helped us with our efforts to um, get the vaccine out. So thank you for your work as no well. Problem. I appreciate it. Um, Benet? Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Benet Rogers. I am the president and CEO of Crossroads Community Services. And I um, am excited to be here today and talk with you a little bit about this topic. Uh, for those of you who don't know Crossroads, we are a hub that serves about 120 organizations and deliver over 11 million pounds of food last year in 2020, uh, 2.8 to our own pantry clients who come directly to us. And like the hospitals, we've had to change our structure a little bit. They're not inside, but they're coming drive-through every day and just seeing a lot of need out there and um, looking forward to the discussion today and hearing from some of the other panelists as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And Benet has a long history of serving the community um, here in Dallas and over, um, over 20 years of, of providing support like this. So thank you so much. Thank and, you. And um, Dr. Hernandez. Hi, I'm the Associate Medical Director for VNA for Denton County. And uh, I also work with my husband full-time in the post-acute care world servicing the nursing home population and assisted living population, which have definitely been hit very hard with this. I uh, used to be a full-time hospitalist, so I understand that world as well, and uh, job kind of morphed into this, and still kind of try to keep my hand in the, in the Baylor system. Happy to be here. Thank you, Dr. Hernandez, and, and like she said, she works directly with our VNA patients. Um, Denton has gotten quite large, as many of you know, so um, she has her hands full indeed. So I will go ahead and just launch into some questions. And, um, and then again, if you have questions and you're live, go ahead and submit them in the chat. And then Jennifer will um, get with us later on in the discussion to read those questions so we can address your questions um, as well. So I'll just kick it off with, um, and anyone's welcome to weigh in, the more the better. Um, but I wanted to kind of address one of the biggest reasons why we wanted to have the call, and that is, 
the issues surrounding the development of a vaccine that's been approved um, for emergency use. Marcus, do you want to take it away and kind of talk about what that means, what the development looked like, and how that affects, if it affects the safety of the vaccine? That's a question that we get a lot at VNA. Yeah, and we should really be praising the science community on this. I mean, March 11th, we the WHO determined this was going to be a global pandemic. And then it looks like November 9th was when our first vaccines were really starting to be known. I mean, that transition is remarkable. Every step along the way, there were checks and balances. The FDA and the CDC did every part to make sure that they were safe and they were um, had prominent efficacy. Um, for the emergency use, they have to provide, it's a 200-page doc document to the CDC and the FDA, and then they go and they have to respond with their own version of that document. Everything is dotted and crossed at that point. As far as safety of like the mRNA coming out, we've had previous research in this. When the SARS-CoV-1 came out about 18, 20 years ago, the mRNA was already studied at that point. And then funding fizzled out and it never moved forward. With SARS-CoV-2 coming out, they picked up right where they left off. The funding got channeled in and that was at least 10 to 20 years worth of research that was already done before this happened. Can you speak to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines versus the new, again, a lot of questions surrounding the new Johnson & Johnson authorization. Can you speak to the difference in those three vaccines? Absolutely. So with your mRNA vaccines, which would be your Moderna and your Pfizer, the mRNA is basically a transcript of the viral DNA. So it's inactive, so it's not going to give you the virus, but it'll give a blueprint for us to create that immune response. So the vector version, which is the Johnson Johnson, actually uses the shell of the adenovirus, which is the cold virus, that brings in also a part of that live virus. And since we already get sick with the cold, the cold kind of squirts its right way right into our body and our cells. It opens up the adenovirus and then our cells then create the protein and the immune response to that. The end result is pretty similar with the antibodies that we're going to get from it. It's just the mechanisms in which we get them into the cell are different. Dr. Chang, I'm going a little bit off script here, but that makes me think of, a, of another question. And that is, what is the difference between the body's immune response to a vaccine and how it addresses the virus if it's exposed versus someone who has had COVID and the immune response for people who have already had COVID and do they still need to get the vaccine? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. So uh, Marcus did a really good job of actually describing um, how those vaccines work, okay? And, and part of this, uh, the questions that, that, that we've gotten a lot is, you know, is it possible to get COVID from the vaccine? Mm -hmm. uh, is it the virus that you're giving me? Is it a dead version of the virus? I mean, what are you actually giving me? And, and as Marcus described, both, well, I say all three, and I say both, both types of vaccines because the Moderna and the, and the Pfizer are actually relatively similar. Um, but all three of those vaccines, okay, only bring in the DNA coding or RNA coding in the other case of one part of the virus. Okay, so at no point is the virus that causes COVID-19 inside your body. So that's the first thing that everybody really needs to realize is that at no point is that virus inside you. Okay, so it is absolutely impossible for you to get COVID-19 from the virus. Okay, now as to what is the difference if you receive the virus, if you've had the disease already versus if you have not had the disease already. There really is not a whole lot of difference in your body, all right? Our bodies are trained to recognize what is not us. Anything that is not us, our bodies are gonna react to, all right? Whether it's a vaccine that makes a little protein or whether it's the virus that comes in as a full boat virus, your body knows that neither of those things is you. Okay. And so what it's going to do is going to, it's going to fight. It's going to produce a lot of antibodies and a whole lot of other things that we'll leave off the table for now. Let's just leave it at antibodies. Okay. That recognize that it's not you. And so then your body goes to war and it attacks these things and kills it. Okay. That's it. That's how this works. So to answer your question, there really is no difference 
between you getting the vaccine after you've already had COVID or whether you haven't had COVID. Now, there's some nuances there, but I'm not going to bore you with those. Essentially, your reaction is the same. Now, the other part of your question is also very interesting. Should we go ahead and get the vaccine after we've already had COVID? It's a very good question, right? I already got COVID. Like, my body should recognize it already. Why doesn't it? Why would I get the vaccine again? Well, this is what we know about the two situations, okay? Let's take a step back and let's just take a look at our brief one-year history now with COVID-19, all right? How many tens, hundreds of millions of people now across the world have gotten COVID-19? I mean, that number goes up all the time, but let's just call it 100 million. It's probably more than that, but let's just call it that, okay? Do y'all have any idea how many of those people have gotten reinfected with COVID-19? Y'all probably don't know the answer. That's okay, okay? But the answer to that is this. Even in the literature, we have less than 50 cases documented in the literature. Now, we can assume that maybe there are a bunch of, you know, that happened out there that didn't get documented, and that's probably true, all right? But even if we increase that 50 to 1,000, Let's just say we include up to 1,000. That means that 1,000 out of 100 million have gotten the disease again, which is to say that having it once doesn't 100% protect you, but you got to be really unlucky to get it again. All right, now let's get back to this vaccine question. This is why that number is important. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, the reaction in your body to the vaccine is stronger than to the natural disease. We know that, okay? We know it's more durable, meaning we know that the antibodies last longer after the vaccine than after natural disease. So I ask you, do you want the vaccine? Well, the answer is clearly yes, <laughs> right? Because after the vaccine, you have a protection that lasts even longer. And it knocks your chance down of getting that disease again even farther. So the current CDC recommendation is absolutely go ahead and get the vaccine. In fact, in fact, you don't even have to wait very long. Let's just say you got COVID, you're healed today on uh, March 2nd. CDC doesn't even, doesn't even require you to wait a very long period of time. They say within a week, you can receive the vaccine just to boost your immune response that much more. Right. That's wonderful. Um, I, I have gotten a lot of questions about that because of course, a lot of people that we know, we all know and love have had COVID. And I think that that has changed because originally they were saying, you, or we were hearing from somebody, you have to wait a period of time. And so I'm so glad that you clarified that. Um, Benet, I wanted to direct this question to you um, working in the community and um, probably just like all of us hearing feedback in the community on how they feel about the vaccine and what their level of interest is in receiving the vaccine. Can you um, speak to that? And then Dr. Hernandez, you can kind of piggyback because of your work in the community as well. In the post-acute world, you hear a lot of feedback as well. What are people saying, um, Benet? Are they interested? And if they're not interested, why not? So that is a very good question, Olivia, particularly, um, and I'll speak from two perspectives, one from the African-American community, which has a very high risk um, of uh, severe COVID, um, for lack of the word that's coming to me, reaction. So because of the comorbidity that exists, um, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, really there's been a push to get them to take the vaccine. So quite frankly, there is in, in that community, it is the idea of it was done really fast. And I get what the medical community is saying, but how fast can we get a vaccine that really combats what we're seeing take so many lives and make so many people so ill. And then two, you still have some cultural history um, from Tuskegee experiment that African-Americans are like, not me. I, you know, I, I saw what they did and I don't believe it can be done. And so you're still really needing to do a lot of education and build some trust. And I think as more as you get lead, more leaders in particularly that community who are taking the vaccine, 
who are having good responses, who are better educating uh, the broader African-American community, you may see that happening more. But I think it's also areas that are not receiving the vaccine um, as rapidly as some other areas. So there's education and accessibility uh, for them. I think the broader community, it's somewhat the same. Wow, that was really fast. How fast can we develop something that's supposed to be more effective in taking the vaccine than the flu vaccine that I have to take every year? So I think that you're dealing with the rapid response, which is great. I think the medical community and all of those, they just dug their heels in and said, this is it. This is the priority um, because it's affecting so many people. But there's just that trepidation, that lack of trust, that sense of, is this some, you, it doesn't take much to, to fuel an untrue fire uh, with, is this some way the government's tracking me? You know, is this some way to implant something in me? I mean, there's all kinds of really odd stories going around. Um, and it just takes a little lack of trust to believe those things to be true. So you've got a lot of education that needs to happen. Um, and then you've just got some just combating overall cultural, I don't take vaccines. Um, you know, I don't take the flu vaccine and I'm not taking this one. And so, you know, to that extent, uh, you're battling both culture and, and trust. And, and we've just got some work to do there. But I think, as I said, as the leaders in those various communities take the vaccine, are open and honest about the impact that they've had um, and the benefits that they've seen from it, um, we'll hopefully see some transition of mindset happening there. Thank you. Dr. Hernandez, do you see that kind of fear and trepidation in some ways in the community? Yes, and just to piggyback on what Benet said, I mean, it really, and, and Dr. Chang as well, this is not new technology. I mean, this is technology we've had for a long time. It's been fast because we've cut through a lot of red tape <laughs> and we've been able to authorize it earlier. So it really, I mean, it only took three days to isolate the spike protein to find out what our bodies respond to and then to, to come up with the vaccine component. And then it took 60 days of paperwork to get the, the trial started. So that's really mm -hmm. phenomenal. If that tells you how advanced science is nowadays, um, it, it's not, it, that was the easy process was, was isolating the spike protein. So um, anyway, in terms of the, the trepidation by the community, uh, it's been interesting because uh, the patients that I've had in our assisted living and nursing home, they all are begging me for the vaccine. Mm -hmm. They want it. They do not want to die. They realize that they're at the high risk population. I have maybe had one or two refuse um, and that's it. That's it. Um, the people, unfortunately, that I see are refusing it are some of the, the younger aides and nurses and the extended families. And I think part of that trepidation is they think, well, even if I get COVID, I'm not going to have a bad disease. So why would I get vaccinated? And I think that's a very, um, unfortunately, a selfish mindset. Um, I can understand the concern for a lot of people, but what we're, we're failing to realize is how your decision is affecting other people in the community. I had a huge outbreak recently at one of my facilities and it was an aide that brought it in when she, she should have been quarantined with her son and, and didn't, unfortunately. And from that one person that came in, even though as soon as she had symptoms, she was isolated, uh, I had 18 patients that got it right away and five passed. Um, and that was unnecessary. Um, unfortunately, the, the patients had not been vaccinated yet. That happened the week after. <laughs> um, but it was just a really sad, sad situation and one that could have been prevented. On, on that note, Dr. Chang, can you um, and anybody else address um, that issue of what happens to society as a whole, of course, our immediate circles, and then society as a whole as people get vaccinated? How does that increase the safety? Like Dr. Hernandez is saying, if I'm nervous to get it for myself, is it a good argument to say, well, maybe get it for other people? How does that work? Yeah, I, I think it's a fabulous point that uh, Dr. Hernandez started to make there. Um, I've said this from the beginning. I, I don't know if anyone saw, you know, the first day that we were giving uh, vaccines on uh, uh, at Channel 5. Uh, other, other than me trying not to cry when they stabbed me in the arm because uh, I'm a big wuss. Uh, you know, one of the things I said was, 
you know, do this for your family. Do this for your community. Do this for your friends. Because this is really what it's about. This whole idea of herd immunity that everyone has heard this, uh, you know, bandied about all, all over the airwaves. Let's just talk about that in a very sort of basic way. All right. We're really what that means is this. And we think of our community as, let's just say, 100 people. Okay. Of course, our community is bigger than that. But let's just think of it as 100 people. All right. If everybody got the vaccine, uh, and we know that Pfizer is about 95%. So let's use that. 95 out of 100 of those people would now be immune from COVID-19. That's great, right? But how many people does that leave that are not immune? Five, right? That's not a trick question. Okay, five. Now we have five of those people wandering around in our group of 100. That's not very many. The virus is going to have a very hard time finding those five people because it's got to get through those 95 to get to those five. That is called herd immunity. Okay. That means that the herd as a whole will protect those that did not have the vaccine work. Now, let's take that the other way. What if we had 100 people in our community and only 50 got? the vaccine, right? Now that leaves about 52 and a half, if I did my math correctly, that are not immune. Now, how hard is it for COVID-19 to get into your community? It's pretty easy because every other one of you is not immune, okay? So why did Dr. Hernandez say that the more people that get it, that the better off our community is? That's why, because the more people that are actually immune, then the better protected those in our community are that are not immune. Does that make sense? Okay, mm -hmm. that's why this concept of herd immunity is so important and why you hear this number, 70%, 80% kind of thrown out there as the threshold we need to get to. Quite honestly, guys, if we get to 100, even better. We're, when we say 80, that's just minimum. That's just minimum basic level that we need to get to before we feel like there's a good amount of protection for the entire community. Because remember, even those who got the vaccine, there is a 5% chance that just for whatever reason, it did not take in those folks. We have to protect them, okay? We have to protect them. And in fact, immune systems, and I'm saying anything that people don't know, right? Immune systems don't respond as well when you're elderly. Mm. Nothing responds as well when we're older, right? And so this is exactly the population that we need to protect with the herd, mm -hmm. right? So in case it didn't take for this population that the herd protects them, mm -hmm. okay? So everybody, everybody, everybody has got to go get it. I love that um, kind of visual of the herd protecting people who may be more susceptible, more at risk, more, more vulnerable, and the sense of responsibility that that um, creates in me. Marcus, when it comes to, again, some of the fears related, though, to side effects, because I hear that as well, um, not only what Benet and Dr. Hernandez are saying about some of the cultural and um, also I just don't get vaccines reasons, but also side effects. Can you speak to... Um, and I've had the vaccine, I've had both doses. And so I'm a little bit familiar. Um, my case will be different from other people's cases. So I know it's different for everyone, but what is the risk of side effects and how severe are we talking? They vary, they're generally mild. Um, everybody gets something or nothing. It's one of those that I spoke to some people that after their first shot, they had nothing. Other people, their arm was sore, mild fever, things like that. Um, just like your wild type exposure, Immunity starts building as soon as you get the vaccine. Within a couple of days, your body, body's already kicked into gear to say, hey, something foreign's here. We need to start protecting ourselves against it. With the second shot, the second shot's what's creating a larger immune response because we've already built those B cells and T cells that know that something is foreign and we need to go ahead and fight it off. So the good and the bad of it is, is that the stronger the side effects, the stronger immune response really is. <laughs> so like Dr. Shang said, that the advanced population since they do have a lessened response, they tend to have lessened side effects of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Under 65 or 55, you're more likely to have an, a reaction to the 
second shot because of such a high immune response. With that being said, the most common that we've had has been headache, just general fatigue, malaise. Um, you're always going to have injection site soreness, potentially redness, but all that is normally treatable. You can treat it like you normally would any other day that you have a headache or sore aches. You can do your Tylenol, your ibuprofen, things like that. Um, that's how I would say treat any of your ADRs. And the, and the side effects go away pretty quickly, right? I mean, even for people who do have them, I had some side effects after the second dose. And because so many of us at work got the dose on the same day, we were all calling each other. How are you? How do you feel? People generally felt okay. If not, if anything, after the first dose, the second dose, you know, because your body is like, Hey, I recognize that that's bad. Um, we had more, uh, more symptoms, but for mine, I mean, they were gone in less than 24 hours. Is that what you're seeing? That's what I'm saying is that most symptoms alleviate within 12 to 24 hours. There could be lingering residual. I did have some employees that it would last up to 48 hours. Um, but 24 hours, usually you have full symptom alleviation. Um, what I think of, and, and please comment on this, um, anybody can take this question, and that is the possible risk of side effects is nothing compared to the possible risk of getting COVID, right? Absolutely. So really with the vaccines, it's ultimate reduction of harm. The natural wild type COVID can range from mild symptoms to hospitalization and death. The main goal of these vaccines is to reduce ultimately hospitalization and death. That's our number one goal is to stop those things. Surviving and not surviving are two different endpoints. If you have mild and moderate, but you survive, then we consider that a win. So overall reduction of harm and death hospitalization was our endpoint. And all of the ones that have come out have reduced it almost to 100%. So it definitely outweighs your wild type exposure. Do we know right now, um, Dr. Chang or Dr. Hernandez, what the risk of death is from COVID-19? And and even one death is too many. But um, I think that one of the issues that we see is that a lot of people say, well, even if I get COVID, it's not going to be that bad. I've had friends and family with COVID. They have survived. They're fine. So I guess my question is two part. Of course, we don't know how severe we're going to get it if we get it. What is the risk of death? And then also, do we know what the long-term consequences of COVID might be? Yeah, so Christina, do you want to speak more to to your uh, population and I can speak more in general? Yeah, those are are all very very loaded questions. And I don't know if I have exact (laughs) numbers for you. Um, I I can just tell you that um, every person is different. The thing with COVID, it's completely unpredictable in terms of how you are going to handle the virus in your body. Um, you, I've had some of my sickest patients with end-stage liver disease and heart disease, and I can't believe he survived. <laughs> I thought for sure if he got COVID, he would pass, and he didn't. I've had patients that have been the exact opposite, and they've been the healthiest, and they passed. Um, and so we, we just don't know, and we can't predict, and I think it's really frustrating as a clinician, and I'm sure Dr. Chang agrees, is because this is a, a virus like we've never seen before. It doesn't really follow a predictable pattern in every single person. And we're still looking for some of those outliers and extra symptoms that people are reporting that we didn't know before. We do have a better, hand, better handle on it um, this year as compared to at the very beginning. So we have more symptoms that it can present with. Um, in terms of the long-term consequences, that's a difficult question too. They've established a lot of clinics in different cities to test this exact thing. Um, You know, I had a friend that had it a year ago in March and um, she is now dealing with asthma that she never had before. So respiratory symptoms from scarring of her lungs from horrible COVID disease. And she was a totally healthy person with no medical problems before. And so we're beginning to study that. I think it's still kind of too early to tell the long-term consequences. Not getting it to begin with is your best bet. (laughs) And I think getting vaccinated will definitely help with that, uh, help, help your own immune system, your own body, as well as preventing spreads to others. I would really like to uh, see more of my patients survive from this, and I'm very hopeful that that will continue to occur this year as more people are getting vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, so much truth in what Dr. Nanda has just said, right? I mean, 
uh, statistically around the world, you know, you're looking at a, a death rate depending on the development of the country. Uh, of course, you know, those with better healthcare systems do a little bit better, but but let's just say it's around 1%. It's an easy number to remember. It's about 1%. Here at Parkland, we're about 0.8% of our patients. However, even though that number is low, someone is the 1%, mm, right? Absolutely. I mean, and when you take... 10 million, let's just call that number. And then you say 1% of that. 1% of a million is still what? Let's do the math. 10,000 people. When we say one is too many, 10,000 is certainly too many. And as Dr. Hernandez pointed out, we don't know who that 1% unfortunately is going to be. Do you want to roll the dice? I don't. She's exactly right. Prevention is the way to just stay out of that game. We don't even need to roll those dice. We don't need to touch those dice, right? If we never get it. And so her point is exactly right. And the other thing, Olivia, that I think is a great question you asked and what people often don't think about. We think about death versus no death, right? That's a real easy number and a real easy line to sort of delineate statistics. What we don't talk about a lot is the number of people, the orders of magnitude, more people that have long-term sequelae from COVID, just like the patient examples that Dr. Hernandez has talked about, friends and family examples that all of us have talked about. We, we haven't even quantified that. We haven't even quantified that. You know, I, I have a friend story as well to tell. 31-year-old man works in the OR as a, uh, as a tech at one of our local hospitals, runs triathlons, okay? Finished the Hawaii Ironman triathlon. Hmm. Today, four months after COVID, still cannot run a mile. One mile, okay? That's profound. Things like that, people need to remember. It's not just life and death. It's also life after COVID. Mm -hmm. It's significant. It's significant. I think that is um, the point that I kind of wanted to draw out is just personally my concern for those that I know and love and, and you the same, our children, um, our grandparents, yes. our parents. Children as well. We don't know what this is going to look like for them, um, for us in six months, five years, 10 years, 20 years. This is a, a new virus. And so that's my concern. Like you said, don't touch the dice. Don't play the game. Get vaccinated so that we don't have to be discussing in 20 years why this or that may be related to COVID. And we've seen that with other illnesses too um, down the road. Benet, I kind of want to, um, on that note, but, but switch gears a little bit to talk about the vaccine in terms of distribution. And like you said, accessibility. How is that going um, where you serve and are there things that we can do to improve it? And then Marcus, of course, I'd love for you to weigh in as well about how the distribution of the vaccine is going um, today. Because I know every single day has been totally different in terms of distribution. And of course, Parkland has been incredibly helpful in getting people vaccinated, including a lot of our own staff. Um, but how are how are you seeing that affect the community where you serve, Benet? Um, you know. Olivia, I think one of the things is right actually where Crossroads is, is, is uh, right near Redbird Mall and UT Southwestern put a, um, a, a distribution uh, area center there in Redbird, which was great um, because that certainly is the heart of South Dallas and, and, and a large number of the communities uh, that need it, and, but yet at the same time don't want to take it. And they saw a really out, good outpouring and very quick response, but there were only 10,000 appointments available. And so they were gone within days. I was fortunate to get one, uh, but I know others who were like, how on earth did you do that? And I just happened to go online at the right time. Um, and I think some of it too is technology. You know, if I'm having to register 
online and make my appointment online, you still have a large population that just because I have a phone doesn't really mean I know how to navigate that. And so what we're seeing more organizations like Crossroads do, um, St. Philip School and Community Center has done this as well, is set up where they're already serving people to help them navigate the online registration process. Um, because a lot of people just say, it's too hard. I can't figure out how to register. I'll just do it later. Um, and later could be never, as we're certainly hearing. Um, I think the other thing is serving where people are being served. And so here at Crossroads, we are serving people every single day through our drive through um, pantry line. Let's have it have it offered here where people are actually coming to receive other services and so you know there's education that can be happening at, at that uh point there's also you know registration that can be happening and then of course the the delivery of the vaccine itself uh, but i think it, it it's just really showing up where they are um, because this is a population quite frankly that isn't going to go looking for it um, and so UT Southwestern was absolutely right. Let's, let's bring it to them. And you see more of that happening, not just here in Dallas, but around the country. Let's go into the communities um, where transportation is an issue. There's no public transportation in, in this area. So there are some barriers. So I think the distribution key is coming to the, the prospective you know, patient versus waiting for them to come to us. Are you seeing any movement toward um, vaccines being available at your site and other sites, St. Philip's, Brother Bill's, places where people are coming um, mm -hmm. to have another service delivered, such as food? Right. Are you seeing any movement toward that end? I, you know, let me, let me be transparent and confess that uh, today is my second day as president you know, of <laughs> Crossroads Community Services. And I certainly, thank you. I certainly would want to have that discussion and see how we can do that here because we certainly are set up for it, quite frankly, both right. front and back parking lots. Uh, I know that there was some, I came from St. Philip's School and Community Center, and I know there was an outreach there um, in some relationships that they have to try to do that through their drive-through pantry and then all the various community services they have, but they weren't able to to make any headway. They did become a registration site. Um, that was really something community led on their own, uh, but not able at, at last word that I heard uh, to actually have distribution of the vaccine on site. But I think that's key. Those numbers aren't huge in the numbers of thousands, but when you can get hundreds saying, hey, you know, I did it and it wasn't that bad. And you really are, that is the population. Uh, we are serving the folks who will end up taking it back to their families, will end up taking it back out into the community. Um, and so I think the more we can get in partnership with some of these smaller local organizations who are serving what may seem like smaller numbers, those small numbers have that ripple effect. Um, and, and I think the conversation about the long tail of impact of COVID, that's not being heard a lot. Yeah. Uh, not just the, it, it, to me, it's not. It's not being heard that, oh, I got COVID, but now I have all of these mm -hmm. residual symptoms. Um, it's, oh, I, I'm better. And so then there's that mindset of, well, if I get it, is it really that bad? And then it's over if I do. So again, more education and conversation about the realities of even if you get it, that doesn't mean that it's just you're, you're get it and done. You know, there, there's some long tail residual issues that could come from that, not just for you, but for your family too. Mm -hmm. And as you said, the ripple effect, as more people um, in the community centers get the vaccine and mm -hmm. do well with it and have that sense yep. of relief, that is edu community education. That absolutely. does provide that peace of mind. Um, it's the fastest community education. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's word of mouth. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like um, jumping in with both feet, Vinay, to your new role. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. Marcus, what are you, I mean, you guys are on the front lines of this in terms of a pharmacy and have been, been very, very quick to distribute vaccines. How, how do you see that issue being addressed of people who cannot come to get a vaccine somewhere? 
that's where community pharmacy is going to be a staple. Um, given our general, like the advanced population, they can't navigate email as well. They can't navigate online forms and things like that. So when you have these mass hubs like the Texmore Speedway, they work for a certain population, but our general community of geriatrics can't go to these populations. Sometimes it's transportation issues. Even in underserved communities, it's the same thing. It's transportation mm -hmm. issues, navigating the computer system if they have computers, navigating the forms if the I mean, being able to read the forms is an issue. And in a lot of these communities, like Renee touched on, that we have to go out to the community leaders. We're looking at churches. We're looking at things like that. Because like you said, word of mouth is key. If you see that your church leaders and your local community leaders are on board, then it is more likely to catch steam that way. Um, from a, just a general pharmacy standpoint, pharmacists are the most accessible healthcare providers in the nation. At any point when you go to Walmart or CVS, things like that, you are within 100 yards of a healthcare provider. We have also been doing vaccines for many, many years. So the rollout of this was a pretty easy transition to something we normally do. We do flu shots, shingle shots, things like that all day, every day. So with the numbers just having to be amplified, the tools are already there. Um, but... I would say getting to the underserved and older population that can't navigate forms and online registrations. Um, do you see the real possibility? And I know I feel like, and do you see that the vaccine rollout is beginning to sort of pick up pace, especially now with Johnson and Johnson and, and you guys already got your Pfizer vaccines. Do you feel like it's a possibility in the near future that the distribution will have bigger reach out into the actual community centers? It will. Globally, right now, we have seven vaccines that are out, just on in a global scale. Here we have the, we'll say two and a half, because J&J just got their approval. But I'm already getting notifications to order the Johnson & Johnson. Um, we don't know when those allocations will actually be on site, but it's available. Like, the portals are already there. So the speed in which it's happening is phenomenal. The state had the initial control of the allotments, the federal has now taken over and it's been sped up immensely once the federal program kind of kicked in. Um, from our own pharmacy standpoint, the federal pipeline has been amazing. Um, for us as practitioners, ordering's easy. It just, once it gets here, that's when the fun starts, but the whole process as a whole has been pretty straightforward. Okay, so I'm gonna switch gears again. And um, Dr. Chang, I wanted to ask you if you could address populations who um, may or may not be appropriate for the vaccine. So I'm sure everyone has heard some of the concerns about pregnant women, um, risks of infertility. Like Benet had said, there's stories that go around and, and whether there's truth or not, I'm not sure, but I know Dr. Chang, you will know um, if there's truth behind them or not. So. Can you address, and just really quickly, individual populations and, and who would not be appropriate for the vaccine versus who would? Because as I understand it, most people would be appropriate. Yeah, so it, that, I, I love that you brought that up because you know I am an OB-GYN, so I, right? I love questions about women's health. Um, uh, listen, really, bottom line first, as my boss likes to say all the time, bottom, bottom line becomes top line. Just about everyone is appropriate. For this vaccine okay there are really very few times where you'd want to really think about it number one if you have had an allergy to the first shot please please be careful with the second shot okay so go and go to go to a place that's specifically designed uh and uh, and has the ability to take care of severe reactions talk to your doctor about whether even the second one is necessary uh, for you, depending on how severe that first reaction is. So that's really the A number one that I want to put you, you put up on top. If you have a documented allergic reaction to this vaccine, please think real long and hard and discuss with experts before you get the second one. So that's really the, the one true absolute contraindication. Okay. If you have had reactions to other vaccines, it does not mean you will have a reaction to this one. Okay. Now, a little more care is necessary, and most of the places, certainly the, uh, our hub sites at, at, at Parkland all have the capability to take care of minor reactions, okay? So don't let that stop you, all right? Allergies to other things, nuts, berries, woods, plants, pets, 
Don't let that stop you. Okay. Foods. No, come on in, get it. If you want to be observed for a little bit longer, that's okay. We'll watch you for as long as you want to be watched. Okay. You sit there for an hour if you want, and we'll make sure things are okay. Now, just as a point of reference, 99% of reactions will occur within the first 15 minutes. Okay. So you don't have to sit there for an hour. That's all I'm saying. All right. Okay. So that's number one. Now, otherwise, let, let's talk about pregnant women, because this is a big deal, obviously near and dear to my heart. All right. All right. I get this question a lot. Dr. Chang, if it was so safe for pregnant people, why didn't they just come out right at the beginning and say it's safe for pregnant people? Okay. Well, here, here's, here's the bottom line for that. All right. Both Pfizer and Moderna test, tested their vaccine on 40,000 people each. That's a lot. Okay. Now, as you can imagine, within those 40,000 people, there's some women. All right. And as, as you can also imagine, some of those women got pregnant. Okay. Now, Pfizer and Moderna actually went out of their way to exclude people who knew they were pregnant because they didn't want that extra variable in their study. However, humans are humans. People do what they do. People get pregnant. Okay. All right. And so there were a few hundred in each of those studies that got pregnant while on the vaccine. So there you already have proof that you can get pregnant after getting the vaccine. Does not cause infertility because those people actually got pregnant. Okay. Now let's talk about the safety aspect of it. Okay. None of those pregnancies had any issues with the pregnancy or the baby. Zero. Zero. Okay. So again, then the question comes, Dr. Chang, why didn't they just say that at the beginning? Okay. Well, scientists are scientists, right? Okay. When you're talking about a large scale study and a small number of, of participants that are pregnant, no one's going to come right out and say, we know for sure that it's not going to do anything to pregnant people. It's because the numbers were too small. Okay. So no one came out and said definitively that. However, I will say this, every expert society for pregnancy, every expert society for pediatrics, babies came out immediately and said, not only do we all believe that this vaccine is safe, we recommend it in pregnancy and breastfeeding. And that is true across the world, not just here in America. Okay, so you can be reassured and sure that it is safe for people who are trying to get pregnant, who are pregnant, who are just got done being postpartum and are breastfeeding. They are absolutely safe. Now, I love, I love what Benet said. All it takes is a kernel of truth or not even truth, I say a kernel of fact, and this thing grows legs, okay? And I wanna address that here right now so people can go out and educate your friends and neighbors, okay? The issue with pregnancy, the theoretical issue with pregnancy came from one fact alone. And that is that there is a protein, don't worry about the name, there is a protein involved with placental development, okay? That has some similarity, less than 20%, similarity to the spike protein of the coronavirus, okay? Now, the spike protein is, of course, the little, everyone's seen the little gray ball, right? You've seen the little sticks that come off it. That's the spike protein, okay? And that is what our vaccines are designed against, all right? And so the theory was, uh-oh, Benet, the spike protein is somewhat similar to this protein in pregnancy. Well, what if the the antibodies in my body now go and attack my placenta. That's it. That's where this rumor came from. Okay. Mm. But, but, but without getting into all the sciencey parts of this, bottom line, people got pregnant on the vaccine. It doesn't cause infertility, guys. It doesn't hurt your baby. And we know that because those hundreds of women all did fine. I think that is so helpful and it, it may seem out in left field to people who are not of um, not women or not childbearing age, but it's so much of our population. And it's also for the multi-generational families that are living under the same roof. We have to get the younger people who are of childbearing age vaccinated to protect their children and also their parents and grandparents. So thank you for addressing that. Um, 
Okay, last question, and then we can, um, it's almost 12.50, we'll go to some questions in the chat. Um, all right, so anybody can take this question, but I know we've talked about herd immunity. Um, as we move forward in the United States of rolling out the vaccine, how does that affect the overall trajectory of the pandemic? So like what happens next? Let's say we do end up with 75% or 80% of the United States, not to mention the world vaccinated. What, what then? Are there more vaccines we need to get annually? I know we may not know, but um, just from what you guys know in your research and in your practice, what's next? As far as the follow-up vaccines, they're still studying these things. Um, Johnson Johnson is still looking at the potential for a second dose. Then Moderna and Pfizer are both looking at potential boosters to strengthen against variants. We don't know what that looks like down the road. Um, as far as this semblance of normalcy for all of us, that is in the future at some point. We don't know exactly when. We do know that the mask will be here for a while, but it's once we get to that herd immunity. And like Dr. Chang said, 100% would be perfect if we could get it, but we want to get as close as possible and then things will return to a new normal. Yes, UT Southwestern actually put out a study, um, uh, I'm going to say probably about three weeks ago now, uh, along with our folks at Parkland PCCI, uh, that said that if we continue with our current vaccination rates in, in, in our DFW area, that perhaps we can reach that herd immunity threshold by the summer, by the yep. early summer. My goodness. And then I will be ripping this thing in half, right? I mean, that's, that's really what this means. I mean, poor... Uh, <laughs> Or Marcus over there must not be alone because he's got his mask on talking to all of you. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, the rest of us are lucky to be in our own offices and we can take it off. But listen, yeah, who, who, who wants it? I mean, I have about 50 masks distributed across my, my vehicles and jackets and everything else so that there's always one on hand. I mean, Benet, don't you want to get rid of this thing? I mean, <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that when we think about that part, Olivia, that's another, another point that people need to understand is the sooner we can get people to take the vaccine, uh, reach this herd immunity status, we get to get back to what will really never be normal again, but that just the ability to walk into, I mean, yesterday I got off, got out of my car, I'm going into Brahms to grab, you know, what you get in Brahms. And I get to the door and I'm like, oh, and I go back to the car because I don't have my mask. You know, I, I think that that point, I mean, you know, I I've, can't tell you how many times I've been somewhere and somebody's like slaps their hand over their face because they realize they've walked all the way in the store without their mask. And I think that that's a point that people are tired of that. And so some people are just not doing it, which is not safe or good, but that's another big point for those of us in the community. I, I'm tired of seeing them on the ground. Um, yeah. You know, uh, My kid does go to school and every day in the car, it's where's your mask? So I keep a stack of them in my car because he never has it. And, uh, you know, so it's just uh, that alone for me, it, it was enough to say, you know, that and my own and other issues that I, I'm concerned about. Um, but I, I just want to get to the place where I can not have to find a room to be by myself for 15 minutes and breathe without a mask. God bless you, Marcus. Thank you for joining with your mask. No problem. Like I said, we've all done that, that walk of shame back to the car to get that mask. Yeah. And we are not meant as human beings to live in isolation and not have social contact. And if uh, people could come into my world for a day, they would see the detriments that the isolation is having on our patients. Even when you come out of the hospital and you go to a nursing home now, guess what? You're stuck in your room for 14 days before you can go into the rehab room. Day requirements. And that hasn't changed. And the biggest thing that I deal with is that depression and that anxiety with those patients that are so desperately needing their family members. And so if we get to that herd immunity by this summer, I would be overjoyed. And we've and all seen a, those. That's a topic for another Lunch and Learn too, is the pandemic of loneliness, which has only been made much worse through COVID, um, especially for our geriatric populations. Right. 
Okay, Jennifer, do you have um, questions from the chat that we can address? Yes, I do. Um, I think you guys sort of addressed it, but let's go ahead and ask it again. Is this going to be like the flu shot where we have to get it annually? Uh, the data is not out yet. We're not exactly sure. Um, we know with the flu shot, there's a lot more variants and the flu shot's ever changing. I mean, as far as which flu shot we get every year, there's algorithms that go into play with the CDC to decide which one it is. There's not as many variants with COVID. So at this point, we think that this one should hold for at least the near future until we really need a booster. Um, all the variants that exist now, none have fully surpassed those that, that have been vaccinated. So all of them at this point are protecting against the general variants. Okay, we did have some questions about that. Hopefully that answered it. For someone who's been really ill and maybe recently ill with COVID and they had pneumonia were in the hospital, is there any danger for them taking the vaccine? Uh, no, and no, the answer to that is actually no, because again, I, I think we've sort of talked about it a little bit, but it, it, it does bear repeating. Um, when you get the vaccine, it is a completely different situation than getting the virus itself. Because again, the vaccine is not the virus. It, does, it, it doesn't have anything really to do with the virus. I mean, if you, if you picture me, Right, you say, Dr. Chang, right? I am the coronavirus, okay, just for right now, all right? What the vaccine is essentially doing is it's telling your cells to make my arm, okay? That's it. So what your body is seeing is Dr. Chang's arm, not Dr. Chang, okay? So again, your, react, your body's reaction to the virus and your body's reaction to the, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, vaccine is really very, very different. Your body can make antibodies to both. However, with the actual virus, the, that virus actually goes in and destroys cells. It actually goes in and really wrecks havoc on your body, whether it's your lungs or your heart or your brain or your kidneys or anything else. Okay, so that's a whole different thing. So maybe that's a long answer to your question, uh, uh, whoever asked it in the chat, but it is a, is, a, is a different process, okay? So you do not at all have to worry that just because you had a bad bout with COVID that getting the shot will return you to that state. In fact, it's you <laughs> that I really want to go ahead and get the shot after because you don't want to get it again. There's no way. You, can, you should get it again, right? So we've got to get you protected. So especially you, you need to get vaccinated. Where do you guys see um, groups that are not included? You know, if you go to sign up at a hub or in a, and you aren't included in that group that's eligible right now, what do you recommend for, for everybody to get in line or to, what are the next steps you see? Yeah, I, I would, yeah go ahead, Marcus, you, you first, yeah. I would say absolutely. I mean, register where you can. Yes. Um, right now we are doing 1A, 1B, and then hopefully in the near couple of weeks, we'll kick over to the 2A. Um, but as it stands now, it's over 65, those under 65 with underlying conditions and uh, first responders and healthcare workers. Um, but like I said, we have lists that are ongoing that once 2A opens up, then we will instantly hit those running. So I would say go ahead and get on with anywhere you can and then just wait it out, wait your turn, and then as soon as you can, get it. Yeah, I completely agree with what Marcus said. I mean, so the, 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 again, the real answer is hang on. Absolutely. <laughs> hang on. We're going to get to you. It's just a matter of time, it, right? I mean, each, each shot takes a particular amount of time, and so it just it takes time to actually get the shots to you, okay? But just hang on. We will absolutely get to you. I also agree with, with, with Marcus. If you can sign up, please sign up, okay? Because we will be working those lists, okay? Mm -hmm. Get in there early. There's there's no harm in getting in line early. No one's gonna let you cut, don't worry, okay? Because I've, I've actually had that question. You know, people, well-meaning people are saying, I don't wanna get in line now because I'm gonna get in someone's way. No, you're not. No, you're not. We're not that stupid, okay? We're gonna look at your, your registration and your profile and, and we're gonna pick the ones that are appropriate right now. But you've gotta get your name on a list so that when is your turn? That, that people have your information already or else you're just gonna be copying all of them again. So I completely agree with what Marcus said. Get, if you can get on a list, let's get on a list. And, and people are working those lists. I and mean, we've had a list started since, I believe it was January 
third was our first list. As we're calling now, we're seeing a lot of people are getting vaccinated. We're calling to say, hey, you're eligible on ours. And they'll say, all right, I got it from the hospital. I got it from Terre County. So on the full front, we're all working through those lists diligently. So get on them. Okay, we have a lot of questions sort of related to this. How do I get my anti-vaccine friends? What, how do I talk to them about this? Friends and family on board. With facts, I mean, we know what the numbers are. We know what hospitalization and death are. We know what mild, moderate uh, symptoms are. All those things are crucial. I mean, we all have that image of the long-term care facilities, people speaking through glass, people couldn't touch their loved ones, things like that. Those are the things that we need to hold on to and the effects down the line. We don't want to regress and go back to that. So we all have to put in a full concerted effort to reach the full healthy future. Mm-hmm. And the CDC has these great sources for like, anti-vax information. Um, it's pretty straightforward and it's updated. I mean, I checked this morning to check my numbers and they're updated daily. I think too, Jennifer, another point that Dr. Chang made is this is really for your family too. Um, Really being thoughtful, um, and maybe it was Dr. Hernandez, um, really being thoughtful of the loved ones in your life, not just, you know, maybe you're elderly, but maybe you have friends who have, you know, health conditions. Maybe you have, you know, your children has a health have health conditions. Um, you know, this is not just about you. Uh, we are past the point of this being about an individual person or a certain group of people. This is worldwide. And this is about the sooner we do this, the more efficient we are at making it happen, the more purposeful we are, the more we get back to, I literally have not wrapped my arms around my mom for a year. And that. Anyway, this is the ability for us to go see people, reconnect. Um, and I'll piggyback too on the mental health piece, having spent 10 years running a crisis line. The, the mental health piece of this from top to bottom and watching my nine-year-old son and his friends dealing with it too, it, it's just not good. And the long-term effects of that that conversation is not really being had either. And so to the level that it should be is what is happening socially, emotionally for our children in this environment, the longer it goes on. Um, the education system. I mean, we've just got to talk about really not just the disease itself, but everything around it. And when I talk to people who say, I'm just not going to do it because I'll be honest, I was initially there and I began to really learn a lot more. And my mom said, I'd like to see the grandkids. I said, okay. So all the sisters were like, we're getting the the shot Um, because it's not just about her seeing them, but we want to see her too, but we're not going to do that if it's not safe. And so let's think about all of it. And I think that's, what's important to have the conversation um, with your friends and quite honestly, if it's you with yourself, you know, how much longer do I want to deal with this? Mm -hmm. I think that for the most part, we've addressed a lot of the questions. One more that I think we already have, but let's go ahead and ask it again. Um, if I get the vaccine, can I transmit it still? Hmm. That's a great question. So well, oh, ahead, I've, I've addressed that several times um, in various media outlets, but I, I think, again, it, it sort of bears repeating here. And, and if anyone else wants to piggyback on it, I think, I think that's great. Um, I don't think I'm going to say anything that, that anyone doesn't uh, on, on the panel, obviously, know already. The, the, the bottom line is we don't know, right? And that's what scientists always say uh, when we don't actually know something. However, that said, I will quote a good friend of mine who is a medical leader uh, up uh, in, in Boston, works at Harvard Medical School um, in Mass General. He said this, if this vaccine does not prevent transmission of COVID-19, it would be the very first vaccine in the history of mankind that did not prevent transmission. Mm-hmm. Okay, so while we do not know for a scientific indisputable fact 
that this vaccine cannot prevent transmission, it would be the only one in history that it didn't prevent transmission. I think it unlikely, okay, that it would be the only one. So, so my true held belief is that this vaccine will prevent transmission, does prevent transmission, and the data will show that once we've had enough experience with this vaccine. As Marcus pointed out, it has been warp speed. Pardon me bringing that term in, but it has been warp speed uh, that we have had development of this vaccine. So therefore, one of the consequences of that is that we don't have a whole lot of data around it just yet. But I do believe that uh, we will be able to say that this vaccine prevents transmission. How could it not? I agree. Thank you. Okay, and I think with that, we will close. Um, Jennifer, if you wanna say a few words in just a second about where this will be posted, but I will um, end with kind of this thought, and that is what comes next is, as Benet was saying, is the cleanup of the mental health um, crisis that, that has, um, probably been worsened by COVID and the long-term effects and all of that. And I could not be more grateful to all of you for the work that you've done during COVID that will endure as we recover from COVID. And so thank you um, for everything you're doing and all of your different um, sectors of the community, Benet and, um, and Marcus and Dr. Chang for rolling out the vaccine, Dr. Hernandez's education, Benet's education, um, and I think one of the things that is a, as a silver lining for COVID is the extent to which we have come together as a community and indeed the whole world um, against a threat, which is COVID. And may we continue to go forward together to solve not only this problem, but other problems that continue to exist um, in our communities. And thank you so much for your time today participating on our panel. 